You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. They know your name. They know your email address. They know who you are. And all those previously anonymous behaviors get rolled up against your identity to to tie it to your PII. Greetings to all and a warm welcome to the Hacking Humans podcast brought to you by the Cyberwire. Every week we delve into the world of social engineering scams, phishing plots, and criminal activities that are grabbing headlines and causing harm to organizations all over the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dave. We got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Harry Moggins. He's CEO of Privacy B, and we're talking about digital breadcrumbs. But first, a word from our sponsors at Know Before. Time travel would be a particularly powerful tool in the hands of any overworked InfoSec professional. Think about it. Being able to see the future and know which malicious emails would be missed by all the existing filters. Your ability to stay one step ahead of the bad actors would rise to a whole new level. Unfortunately, our sponsors haven't cracked time travel just yet. They are, however, introducing a new phishing protection product that can block and remove dangerous phishing emails before your users even see them. Stay with us, and in a few minutes, you'll learn how. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here, we got some follow-up from a listener. What do we got here? Yeah, this is Phil. He writes in, he says, I have a question about safety of IoT consumer devices and how... And perhaps if consumers can do anything to encourage companies to do their due diligence in this field. And uh, it's a long email, so I'm just going to summarize it here. But his the crux of his question is, should consumers use market forces or government regulation or legislation or both or neither to pressure <laughs> slash force companies to conduct better security audits of the networking behavior of uh, and software in their products? And if so, how? Right. So uh, – Phil then goes on to talk about how he purchased a treadmill. Mm -hmm. And it's a treadmill from a very popular manufacturer. He doesn't specify which one, but uh, it is from one of those biggies. I I don't, I'm not, Dave, I'm not an (laughs) user of treadmills. Anybody who (laughs) looks at me can tell that right away. Um, You're not an elite athlete? (laughs) No. (laughs) Not anymore. Pretty good swimmer. Still pretty good swimmer. Um, Well, you're buoyant anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Um, but he talks about how he looked into the uh, to the connectivity, the the Wi-Fi connectivity. I guess there is some data to be collected somewhere. Yeah, uh, and maybe some functionality that you get as a benefit of having this Wi-Fi connectivity. But he looked into the controller, the Wi-Fi piece of it, and found out that this is made in in a country that he says is not too friendly to the United States. Mm. I'm guessing it's China. That's where a lot of these things come out of. Sure. Um, But uh, he contacted the manufacturer to try to find out what they had done and could not get an answer out of them. Hmm. Surprise, surprise, surprise. (laughs) I'm absolutely not surprised by this. Yeah. Uh, So he says his solution was to put the treadmill on his guest network, uh, and he might go through the trouble of putting it on its own own VLAN, Hmm. which I recommend if if you have the technical capability to do that, Put it on its own VLAN, a single device VLAN. Okay. So it can't see anything else in your network. Right. Um, which is a great idea. But he is under the assumption, and probably a correct assumption, that the vast majority of people that buy this device just connect it to their regular home networks. Mm-hmm. And I would say, yeah, probably all of that information then just goes right up to the provider, probably even your Wi-Fi password. There's a good chance that goes up as well. Mm-hmm. That gets... Uh, that gets saved somewhere. Yeah. Um, to answer Phil's question, should consumers use market forces or government regulation? I'm going to say um, I don't have a lot of faith in market forces on this. And the only reason I don't have faith, generally I do have faith in market forces, but here consumers really don't care about the problems. Yeah. Uh, and and regulation seems to be the only solution to get these companies to comply and to care about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are places where they do regulate that, like in the healthcare device um, 
field when I was with Harbor Labs, that was one of the things that we did there. Right. Uh, was was helping people who had medical devices get their devices ready for FA, uh, not FAA, F, uh, FDA. FDA. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> for some reason, that acronym just left my brain right there. Right. Uh, for FDA approval. Uh, there should be something similar for... I think generally all these devices. Yeah. There should be some minimum requirement at least. Well, um, you know, the government is using their purchasing power to try to do something about this. Right. Um, there's this thing uh, called uh, SBOMs, which are Software Bill of Materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's HBOMs, which are Hardware, hardware Bill of materials. materials. And then there are F-bombs, which we're not going to talk about because this is a family <laughs> show. But Which is uh, what you say when all your data gets... <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It's leaked out. When, so basically what the, the federal government is doing is they're saying we buy a lot of stuff. Right. And in order for you to sell stuff to us, you need to provide us with this software bill of materials or this hardware bill of materials. Basically an ingredients list of everything that goes into this device. Mm-hmm. And so that way there's some scrutiny at the government level as to exactly what uh, Phil is asking about here. Um, what's in there? How do we know? Where did it come from? Um, So uh, the degree to which that can affect a consumer device, let me tell you, I mean, the government buys a lot of consumer devices. They do. You know, there are plenty of treadmills on military bases and, and, uh, you know, gyms and government offices and all those kinds of places. So if these organizations want to sell to the government and they're a big buyer, they have to provide this information. So that could be a mechanism could be a, a lever by which these things get sorted out and get audited and, and there's some scrutiny there. That that's that's the most active area that I'm aware of. In the government. Right. Well, it, but it's in the government, but the intention is that by using the purchasing power of the government they're that, going to enforce benefit for everybody. Exactly. Right. Exactly. There's another uh project from the Mozilla Foundation called Privacy Not Included. Mm. And you can just uh Google that, Privacy Not Included Mozilla, and it comes up and it talks about all of the different uh, privacy aspects of different consumer products. And I just loaded up the page and it says, uh, what has four wheels and collects your sexual activity data and sells your personal information? Probably your car. (laughs) Now, I'm intrigued by this. This is just a headline that somebody wrote to grab your attention, but now I'm intrigued. Uh, And it says here, 25 car brands tested, 25 car brands failed, Mm -hmm. Uh, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago about cars providing all this data, but uh, we have now officially gone down our first rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, you know, ultimately, uh, we need some federal privacy legislation we to do. put guardrails on this. Yeah, and we're talking about that today in the interview. There's no hope of that happening anytime soon with nope. the, uh, the the dysfunctionality that's happening in Congress. But yeah, but um, cybersecurity is one of the things that really unites everybody in Congress. They they're all on board with that. Yes, and yet. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it still doesn't we're, come to the floor, does it? Right. Well, right, because they they can't agree to, because any progress is considered to be progress for the other team. Right. And so it just, that's the way it is right now. So hopefully uh, we'll see some movement. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, it is not just the Biden administration. I believe the Trump administration before them really uh, got this whole S-bomb thing started. So mm-hmm. it's a bipartisan effort uh, that's made its way through multiple administrations. Indeed. So good stuff. Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Phil, for writing in. We do appreciate it. Oh, uh, the course, answer, Phil, both. I think Phil's got this under control. Right. Um, So uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something that you would like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. All right, Joe, I'm going to kick things off for us here. Uh, This is a a story from The 404, Mm -hmm. uh, written by Jason Kobler. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with The 404. It's a new publication uh, it's a group of tech journalists who, I can't remember where they left. I want to say Vox, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Hmm. Uh, decided to start up their own thing. Uh, Joseph Cox is one of the folks hmm. on this team. We've so, had Joseph Cox on this show. We have. Uh, and it's a, So it's a, a good team of experienced, uh, very well-respected journalists. And they are making a run of things on their own. And uh, I like the name. 404 Media. It's a good yeah. name. So definitely uh, uh, worth checking out. And they're doing some really good work. 
Um, this article is titled YouTube's War on Ad Blockers Shows How Google Controls the Internet. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe, I don't know what your experience is with YouTube uh, or how often. Would you say you're a frequent YouTube user? Probably daily. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I use YouTube quite a bit as well, mm-hmm. uh, but I actually pay for YouTube Premium. Oh, do you? And I will tell you why I pay for YouTube Premium. <laughs> it's to get the ads off of it. Well, yes, but the thing that finally made me uh, pull the trigger on this is I was in my house and I had a water leak. There was a pipe that was leaking. Water was pouring out of a pipe. And I was going on YouTube to find out what my best course of action was to mitigate this. Right. And so I do a search and I find the perfect video to tell me what to do. And what do I have to do first, Joe? You have to wait through a 15-second ad. <laughs> somebody had this with like a CPR <laughs> right, uh, right, problem. They, they right. had somebody experiencing a cardiac issue and they Googled a video on CPR, how to do CPR, and they have to wait 15 seconds for an ad to play. Yeah. And they write, the, the joke is they wrote, I don't know if it's a joke or if it's true, but they wrote to Google or they make a post on Google or on Twitter about it. And, yeah. and Google says, you should consider going to YouTube Premium. Well, there you go. And that's exactly what I did. And let me tell you, uh, YouTube Premium uh, ain't cheap, but uh, for me, it's worth it because okay. I, I do consume a lot of content on YouTube and it is much better with no ads. Mm. Now, other people have come at this in different ways. They use ad blockers right. to block the ads on YouTube and have varying degrees of success with that. Uh, well, YouTube is coming down on the ad blockers. They're feeling like this is digging into their revenue too much. So they have started a bit of an arms race between themselves and uh, the the companies who provide the ad blockers. You know, and some of these are built into your browsers. Some of them are uh, plugins that you can add to your browsers. Right. And over the past couple of weeks, it's really been back and forth. Kind I bet of. But they're a, not built into the Chrome browser, though. They are not built into the <laughs> Chrome browser, right? And that is one of the points of this story, right? Um, which is that Google. I'll just read a quote here from from the article itself. It says, Google has its hands on quite literally every aspect of this entire saga as a vertically integrated ad tech giant. Most ad blockers are browser extensions that are most widely used on Chrome, which is a Google product Mm -hmm. and the most popular browser in the world. They're being used to block ads sold by Google, the largest ad company in the world. And they are specifically being used to block ads on YouTube, a Google-owned website that is also one of the largest websites on Earth. Mm -hmm. So it is in Google's best interest to block these ads, of course, but they control so much of this. That they they block control, the ad? Yeah, well, they control the browser. Right. Um, and so, you know. Why is it in Google's best interest to block the ads? That's where their I'm, business I'm sorry, I, I, oh. I misspoke. It's, okay. in Google's, it's in Google's best interest to block the ad blockers. Right, correct, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'm... I'm, before we dig in with my thoughts on this, I'm curious what your thoughts on this are from a high level when it comes to ad blockers in general and why we sh- why we should be using them and the morality of doing so. Oh, I think it's perfectly moral to do so. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't have any compunction with using an ad blocker. Okay, uh, I, I feel no moral obligation to watch or be subjected to Google's ads. Okay, uh, even though I generally do use the Chrome browser and sit through the ads, I I'm, I don't believe that that's my obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, you are hosting a site on the internet. Uh, you know, if you want to try to put an ad blocker blocker on there, uh, okay, that's that's your prerogative, but I am also free to try to use an ad blocker. Mm-hmm. This is this is an open, supposed to be an open network, uh, and it always has been. And I, maybe I'm a little bit too uh, too idealistic from the early days of the internet where, I, where everything was available and just on there. Right. Um, but no, I do not have a compunction or, or any reservations about using an ad blocker. Yeah. Also, I do want to comment about your uh, your statement that Google is a vertically integrated. Uh, I don't know if you use the term monopoly, but it you know it seems it seems like it's an end to end Google solution. Well, that's that. I mean, that's they're they are in the midst of an of an antitrust trial right now Correct. as we speak. So. Correct, they are. Yeah. And but the thing is, uh, you cannot you can use Mozilla, uh, Firefox as as your browser. Yeah, no problem. It's it's available for you to do it, and you do not have to use the Chrome Chrome browser. You can. Uh, you can walk away from that. Uh, you can also use other streaming services that are not as good. Not, they're not as good as YouTube. That's really the problem. Right. Um, and they don't have the content that YouTube, YouTube does. Right. Uh, but, I mean, 
if you're a content creator, you can use sites like Odyssey and um, I, there are some other ones out there. Right. But none of us know the names no, of them. None of us know the names of them. That's right. We all know the name YouTube. Right. Right. It's, it's you know, it's the Kleenex of, of online video. Right. Right? It's one of those things where the brand is the service. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing I will add here from my own point of view is that I think ad blockers are a security function mm-hmm. as well because so much malware is delivered through ads. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you know, and that's another, uh, there is a moral argument here, but it's not on the user's side. You know, if you're Google, it is your moral obligation to keep malicious ads out of your ad feeds. Right. And they are not doing that. Yeah. So if you're going to block, uh, you know, I think that it's within everybody, everyone's prerogative to block the Google ads that come up on search results. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Google is, is, has really used a lot, I don't want to call them dark patterns, but I mean, because they're really not, they make these ads look exactly like the search results. Right. Well, that's, that's they're in control pattern. of everything. Yeah. That's what they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I've, I've made the point elsewhere that if somebody wants to toss an ad up on their site in exchange for me viewing their content, I don't have a problem with that. Right. The same way I don't have a problem with TV commercials. You right. Know, in the middle of a, a football game or a show that I want to watch. Um, the problem I have is with all the trackers behind the scenes yeah. who are getting my location, my browser, my mm-hmm. you know, just tracking all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, all the analytics. Yeah, you want to show me an ad? Show me an ad. But one of the main reasons that I have ad blockers installed is to fight all of that tracking stuff. Yeah. Because it's just downright creepy. And uh, at the moment, you know, here in the good old U.S. of A., we don't have legislation to prevent it. Not yet. But, no. but and, and I don't know that we ever will. Yeah. I, I hope so. I, I I don't know. We'll see. It, it'll have to. <laughs> I yeah. I joke that it'll have to affect Congress in some way. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was somebody who had bought because you can go out to a data broker and buy people's information. Right. And there was somebody who had gone out and bought uh, congressmen's browsing histories. Yeah, I think it was said, John Oliver who did yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, with John Oliver was that who yeah, that was? I think it was. Yeah. yeah. I think that's brilliant. It's a great idea. I think they should do that and just start start posting them. Yeah. You know, hey, I bought this information here. Look. Right. Publicly available. Yeah. So uh, there's no resolution to this right now. I mean, it's it's back and forth. Um, this article does point out that there was a time not that long ago when Facebook went down the same path of they were trying to block people who were blocking um, ads coming through on Facebook. And Facebook eventually gave up on that because despite having all the resources, it, it just they decided it really wasn't worth their effort to right. keep doing that. So maybe there'll be some place where we meet in the middle here. Um, I, I will say one thing I was half expecting as a YouTube premium subscriber who also uses ad blockers, mm-hmm. I was afraid that I was going to get notices popping up when I went to use YouTube that said, we notice you're using an ad blocker. Well, I haven't seen any of that. So okay. at least it's smart enough to know that if you are paying Leave me alone. Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, we already have your money. Right? Yeah, so. exactly. exactly. I mean, what does it cost a month for YouTube premium? I think it's like 18 bucks. 18. That's steep for a, a an internet service. I agree. I agree. But or, I I mean I yeah, but I I do get a lot of enjoyment out of it. There are some channels that I watch regularly. I definitely watch there are things that I watch on YouTube that I would have been the kinds of things I would have watched on regular TV in the past. Mm. So you know, it's worth it to me. Does it have TV shows? Uh, or is that that's the YouTube TV service that they yeah, have. that's, that's YouTube like seventy dollars TV, a month. which I also have at home. So we cut the cord and went with YouTube TV, which I is great. Right, great it saves us about eighty bucks a month, I think, to use YouTube instead of the cable company. So you know, worth exploring. Okay, all right, that is my story this week, Joe. What do you have for us? Dave, I have a personal story this week. Hmm. Uh, somebody I know, and this person has asked that I don't identify them. Okay. Uh, but they got got, Dave. Is their name uh, Bo Harrigan? It is not Bo Harrigan. <laughs> no, it's not me. Okay. Bo Jerrigan. <laughs> it is actually a friend. All right. right. No, this is okay. actually a friend of mine. Okay. Uh, I got a phone call on, I think it was Saturday. Yeah. Uh, and I'm coming home, and uh, this guy is in a panic. And he's like, I got got. And I'm like, oh, what happened? And here's what mm-hmm. happened. Okay. Uh, first off, he is a software engineer. Mm-hmm. So 
for guess what he does for a hobby? He writes some code for <laughs> for this uh, this simulation uh, for football. Oh, okay. And it's it's really uh, I mean, there's a small group of people that that write the code and then play the game, and it's it's very it's a a private group of people that do both these things. And mm-hmm. I, I've told him many times, you could monetize this. This mm. is uh, this is really good. And uh, he says, no, no, we're not doing that. We're just, this is a hobby for us. Okay. So I said, okay, fine. Well, somebody in his group says, hey, on, this is on Discord. The person reaches out to him. They, he's been talking to this, this guy for a number of years, off and on. Right. And this person reaches out and says, hey, I'm trying to develop this new game. Can you take a look at it for me? And he's like, sure. So he sends him a link to a Blogspot uh, URL, and it says the file's at the bottom. It's an encrypted RAR file, mm. uh, and, and gives him the password to the encrypted RAR file. Uh, mm. And he says, okay, fine. And he, he, without thinking, because he knows this guy, right. he runs this RAR file, and immediately Discord crashes on his computer. Now, just real quick, Joe, what's a RAR file? A RAR us? file is a Russian uh, zip application. Okay, so it's a it's a way of compressing a file, Correct. making a file smaller. Right. Okay. So it's it's like zip, uh, but making it doesn't work well for executables. Uh, it doesn't compress well for executables, but it does have the encryption function like zip files do. Okay. Uh, so what happens when you encrypt that file is now if you upload that to a place like Blogspot. Uh, they can't um, they can't scan the file because they don't know the decryption key. Right, right. Which is just a, a simple password. I mean, if they brute forced it, they could probably get to it. Yeah. But they don't have the time or the resources to do that, apparently. Right. So he has Discord on his phone immediately, and the guy the guy sends him a text message that says, "Gotcha." Right. Here's your username and your password for Discord. Hmm. And he's like, "Huh, that's right." He says, I, I have a bunch of other information as well. And he shows him some um, captures of some Google contacts lists, which I don't know how the malware worked and, and got that, but I think it's just data stealer malware. Yeah. So he says, okay. And the guy says, I need $500 right now. Wow. And he goes, do you have Zelle? He goes, no, what's Zelle, right? The whole time he's talking to the guy, he's changing his password right? He's changing his Discord password. And then he's going through and changing all of his other passwords while he's stalling this guy. Right. And he keeps stalling the guy. And the guy's like, you better not be stalling me. He goes, look, I'm trying to get this app installed and I got it connected to my bank account. I don't know how any of this works. My computer doesn't work right now. So I can't. Uh, oh, and the other thing he did as soon as that happened and he got that message was he pulled his computer off the internet. <laughs> right. So he disconnected, physically disconnected the uh, the network cable. It was a hardwired uh, RJ45 jack in the back. Okay. Uh, and the guy continues to pressure him and, and, and keeps saying, look, give me, this, give me this money. And he's like, I've got all these different, uh, these different things going on right now. I'm trying to get this app to work. I'm trying to get my, uh, my, my bank account connected. I've got the baby crying in the background. And this guy then sends in all caps, just send me the money, right? You know? yeah. And that's when my, my friend knows, all right, he's, he's done. He's not getting anything. He's frustrated. Right. Uh, so, and, and he's changed all the passwords that he thinks he's concerned about. Uh, and at that point in time, he, he says, you know, he just stops communicating with the guy. Okay. So I actually had, um, I actually got to his house a little bit later and I, I actually pull a copy of the file, uh, off of his, off of his computer oh. and I upload it to virus total virus total does not flag it as malicious, huh. but Virus Total does say that it communicates with malicious command and control servers. Okay, but it, they don't list it as a virus, probably because, or they don't. None of their none of their um, detection methods found it to be malicious because it's probably specially crafted for each each use case, mm-hmm. right? So this is probably a file that this guy built for himself, and now it doesn't set off any of the uh, any of the triggers, right? But then I said, I, I got on my Discord channel and talked to the uh, uh, the group of students I have. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> and I said, does anybody want to analyze some malware? <laughs> ah, okay. And you're, I got a couple of t- takers. Taking advantage of the Hopkins connection. <laughs> right, exactly. All right. <laughs> and uh, somebody actually who's not a Hopkins student took took a look at it and said, it's, uh, yeah, this is a, very, a variation of Epsilon Stealer. Okay. And it's uh, not being flagged because it's, Probably specially crafted, but it certainly does commit, communicate with malicious, uh, malicious domains and malicious IPs. Huh. Uh, so I, I still have it. And the thing is, here's the thing: I actually reached out to uh, Blogspot. I, I I use the report abuse link on Blogspot. This website is still up mm. right now. Mm-hmm. So I've told Blogspot, "Hey, you've got malware on this site, and I, I know it's malware because a friend of mine got victimized by it." Nothing. Still there. Hmm. A week later. Um, so in the process of communication with this attacker, my friend realizes or gets told by the attacker, he says, yeah, I took over your buddy's Discord attack or account with this the same attack, and he didn't give me my 500 bucks, so he doesn't have, um, he doesn't have the account anymore. Ah. Uh, so he, uh, he said, well, I've already changed my password, so you're not getting that. Uh, and he changed he changed his password on his phone, so it's uh, on on a non infected phone, mm-hmm. presumably. The guy did not gain access to his Discord, and I've talked with uh, my friend on Discord as well. Uh, so it's still still him on there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it it's an interesting social engineering attack, though. The guy comes at a, a software developer who he knows is a software developer because he can see all the old chats about right. software development, mm-hmm. says, hey, I'm trying out this game. Use this. And we've seen this, this kind of attack happen from state-sponsored uh, activities. I, I don't think this was state-sponsored. I think this was, this was just some scammer, yeah, um, some script kitty. But we've seen these things happen with state-sponsored actors working in the crypto space. Where they're, you know, they they they're targeting, uh, or in the, I'm sorry, not in the crypto space. It's in the vulnerability research space, mm. where they pose as other vulnerability researchers and get these vulnerabilities from people before they're uh, talked about. Right. So it struck me as uh, as interesting that it was a similar a similar tactic that you know now now these tactics are becoming more mainstream. Yeah, I'm curious. What does your to what degree does your friend who got scammed? Uh, or like, what, what is his emotional reaction to this? Uh, he was excellent question, Dave. And I was, I, I completely forgot to mention this. First off, he was angry. Second, he was upset with himself. He said, I feel so stupid. Yeah. And I said to him, don't feel that way. This guy took advantage of an existing relationship mm. to lie to you. You didn't fall for this because you're stupid because you're not stupid. You're smart. Uh, it's just that this guy exploited something inside of you. Now we all are vulnerable to these kind of things, especially when somebody's impersonating somebody you know by using their bona fide accounts that mm-hmm. you've previously communicated with them on. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, this that this we have seen all over the place, like people hitting up uh uh people on Facebook Messenger for loans because they're out of town, they need money. Right. Uh send me money. Right. But you know, this is this is the same tactic there. Um but you know, posing as a software engineer and specifically targeting software developers so you know they're more likely to open it. Yeah. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, I mean, it's no fun, but it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. I think he he got out uh, relatively unscathed. He did have to rebuild his computer, though. So, mm. completely rebuild it. Well, I, I mean, for a hobbyist like him, that's probably fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, darn. I right. have to, oh, honey, bad news. I've got to rebuild my computer. It's a pain oh. when you have to reinstall your operating system. It sucks. I know, I, I, mean, know. I just don't, did it at work. Don't because... throw me in the briar patch. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good stuff. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from John, who found this conversation over on Reddit at rscambait, uh, which I haven't looked at in a while, but mm. maybe I should. Mm. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the to the actual Reddit post, but this is one of those wrong number text messages. Oh, yeah. Do you want to play the role of the scammer or of the recipient? Uh, I'll, I'll be the one in, in green, so okay. I guess that's the recipient. Right, so I'm the scammer. Okay. Huh. Now, the scammer's pretending to be a woman, so I have to put on my sexy voice, Dave. Okay. Hello, how are you? 
Oh, I've been better. Susan from next door is being a nuisance again. Not that's anything unusual. You know how she can be. How are you? Yes, I find too. By the way, are you John that my friend Lucy introduced me to? I'm Jessica from L.A. This is Carol. John is my husband, though. What do you need to speak to him about? Hum, this isn't my friend John from Texas. Are you having an affair with my husband? I knew he's been acting weird. What are you talking about? I'm looking for my friend. I was looking for him because I heard he was in Los Angeles. Looks like I entered the wrong number. I'm really sorry. Maybe I entered the wrong number. I hope you don't mind me. Are you there? I'm a scammer. Don't worry. Your husband isn't what you think. Okay. <laughs> for a scammer like me, I don't want you to have a marriage problem. And I'm male, not a woman. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So <laughs> huh. that's the end of the conversation. That's an unexpected twist. Right. <laughs> this guy has a conscience. I, I, I'm just trying to scam somebody uh, for money. I don't mean to ruin a marriage. Yeah, it's cert- I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a line. Right. <laughs> right. Some kind of bro code or something. I don't yeah. know. Like, uh, okay. All right. Well, hmm. <laughs> that's funny. That is good. <laughs> All right. Well, of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for our catch of the day, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at n2k.com. Thank you, John. That was awesome. We haven't had a, the opportunity to do a, uh, a like a screenplay in a while here. Like no. A read, table read. <laughs> Great fun. Great fun. <laughs> We were talking about mitigating cyber threats to your organization before your users even see them. The new Fish ER Plus from Nobefore was developed to help you supercharge your organization's email security defenses. How? You get a unique crowdsourcing advantage. More than 10 million highly trained Nobefore end users from across the globe catch and report malicious email that makes it through all the filters. Nobefore's Threat Lab then validates it with AI and with human researchers. Fish ER Plus blocks phishing threads other tools have missed and proactively removes them from your users' inboxes. Not quite time travel, but we think you'll agree it's a vital capability in any InfoSec professional's arsenal. Visit nobefore.com slash products slash fish ER dash plus to learn more. That's nobefore.com slash products slash fish ER dash plus. And we thank Nobefore for sponsoring our show. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Harry Maugans. He is the CEO of an organization called Privacy B. Uh, and we are talking about this notion of digital breadcrumbs. Here's my conversation with Harry Moggins. So a d- digital breadcrumb is really, as a person uses the internet or, or goes through life in any way, uh, unfortunately, to interact with most companies, it requires giving them some information. It requires creating some presence, making your existence known, either publicly or within private hands. And... Um, Every day that goes by and you create more of those breadcrumbs, eventually they start compounding and, and piling up on each other until you have a pretty substantial you know, breadcrumb and digital footprint. Can you give us a, a sense for the scope of this? I mean, are, is this online shopping? Is it social media? Is, is all those things wrapped up? So primarily it's, it's things that show up in Google. You know, that's usually where people are most worried about having their breadcrumbs because that's what can expose a home address or a cell phone number or family, their kids' names, that kind of thing. But realistically, there's a lot of places that create these breadcrumbs, such as using your Kroger Plus card. Those discounts on groceries aren't just out of the kindness of Kroger's heart. They offer the Kroger Plus card as a way to, to sell the data of what you're buying to marketers. And that then, you know, percolates to hundreds of companies in some cases and all those companies are now starting to compile interests uh, and and buying patterns on you know on you, and that's just you know one breadcrumb. As you know, as you go through the day, you have quite a few more that are constantly accumulating. Is there a generational aspect to this as well? I, mean, I guess I'm 
Is there a point at which this started to happen? You know, for folks like me who've been around for a while and have been online as long as there's been an online to be on, was there a moment in time when this really kind of kicked into gear? I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering how far back do we need to worry about? That, that's a great question. And there, um, the answer is a, a little bit, you know, it's something I've debated before, where at some point our society, there's a switch that flipped. We used to be an opt-in society. I don't know where that moment in time was, but it changed and we suddenly became an opt-out society where every company felt entitled to collect everything they could. Uh, consent is a very fuzzy word. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and to your point, when, when I was growing up, I was, you know, the generation, the same, same as you were saying, where, you know, when I first started getting online, my family, my, my parents told me, hey, don't use your real name. Use pseudonyms, right? There's, you can't be you know, safe if you're giving your information out there to anybody who wants it. Well, things are changed now. This current generation is, is really identity first. I mean, even to comment on YouTube, you have to disclose your information to Google. You know, I think it was, um, was it LinkedIn or Twitter? One of those major platforms recently, or X, I guess it's called, they recently started requiring a, a government ID to confirm and verify identity. Yeah, LinkedIn partnered with Clear, and now you have to scan your face to confirm you are who you say you are. So identities somehow become a required element of interacting in online mediums. And I mean, it's always been there, but so let me, let me zoom out. There's a dichotomy. There is the digital breadcrumb where it's anonymous and there's a huge amount of tracking that happens. Every website visited and dropping cookies, collecting mouse behavior, tracking, you know, page view history as you go from page to page and piecing it together to identify a browsing journey, all that anonymously being collected. And then you have the identified side where they know your name, they know your email address, they know who you are. And all those previously anonymous behaviors get rolled up against your identity to, to tie it to your PII. And that's where also you can combine offline shopping behaviors, e-commerce behaviors, um, banking information, even what kind of magazines you subscribe to. All that stuff is collected and tied to an identity. The anonymous side, it's been happening you know, for a decade more or more. You know, Using the internet, ever since analytics companies started tracking, you know, site visits. Um, they added more and more tracking and more data collection. But on the PII side, I would probably say it goes back um, probably five to 10 years, things started getting really scary. Where it's, you know, there's that, that, that um, inflection point where the greed started outweighing the ethics and morality of data collection. Yeah. What are the concerns here for uh, like a, a enterprise level for folks who are running a company concerned about their employees? What, what specific things should be of concern to them? Well, if you see the news, I mean, every every day it feels like there's a new data breach happening. And if you look into those data breaches, uh, almost all of them are caused from overexposed PII online on an employee that's being used, it's being weaponized through spear phishing or social engineering. So a bad guy finds some employee with a level of access that he's trying to compromise. They research that person online. They find everything about their family. They find everything about where they live, their address, the previous cars they've had, anything they can get their hands on about that person. And then they can step into their shoes. They can call a support line and pretend to be that person in the event of what just happened with MGM, you know, social engineering. Or they can send a text message to that person pretending to be a family member or pretending to be a doctor of, uh, of them or of their son or daughter or any way they can trick that person to disclose a two-factor code to sidestep every bit of cybersecurity the employer has and um, really put all that training to waste. Because if you, if you make the person believe it's a legitimate inquiry, you know, they'll give you anything you want usually. Do you empathize with people who have a, a certain sense of resignation when it comes to this? That I hear a lot of people say, you know, well, it's all already out there. I'm just going to relax and go with the flow and because it doesn't do me any good to worry about it because I don't really have any control over it anyway. Yes. <laughs> that is a, um, there's elements of data that you cannot mask very easily, such as um, property records. You know, you can buy a house in an LLC, but ultimately... Uh, if you buy it using your name, where the vast majority of people do, that is a public record. 
the difference is, uh, oh, no, same thing with arrest records. You know, you can't hide the fact that there's a public record about an arrest. But usually government sites that have this information that's out there, they don't broadcast it. It's behind a login or a county clerk's office paper or something like that. The problem is the megaphones. They're the ones who scrape those county court office records and have such strong SEO that they're showing up on the front page of Google every time somebody searches for that person's name. And they make it a lot easier to obtain. And then they take that simple record, like a property address, and they append thousands and thousands of fields. And I'm not exaggerating. In a lot of cases, the data brokers expand a massive number of fields to say, hey, this person at this address has all of these interests, these hobbies, these nonprofit donation activities, this you know, voting propensity, all kinds of information to create this very creepy profile on a person that should not be publicly available, in my opinion. So what's to be done here? What sort of tools are available if somebody does want to try to claw some of this back? I, I'm, I'm biased, but I believe Privacy Bee. <laughs> you know, my company, Privacy Bee, is, is really the best suited one in, in the industry. There's a, a handful of companies helping to claw back that, that data and try to put the genie back in the bottle. A lot of them are focused more on uh, high-volume customers, you know, whereas we focus more on quality. Uh, and being as comprehensive of cleaning up the data as possible. And, and as such, we're not the cheapest. But the way I'm looking at it, privacy is something that you really can't halfway do. Because if there's three sites in Google exposing your home address and cell phone number, and a service only deletes one or two of them, the bad guy is trying to impersonate you for social engineering, spear phishing, scamming, whatever it is, they're not going to know there was previously two sites that got deleted. They're going to search you, find that one result that has the data they want of your cell phone number, and they're going to use it, and they're going to weaponize it. So unless you have a comprehensive approach covering as, as, as many sites as possible, like I think as of today, we have 440 data brokers and 145,000 separate websites we're, we're tracking and, and, and scrubbing against. Without having a comprehensive solution, it's, it's really not very effective for, for trying to reclaim your digital footprint. How do you calibrate people's expectations? I mean, what, what is a reasonable expectation for the, the, the types of things that can actually be scrubbed? Another great question. So there is no silver bullet. <laughs> and um, a lot of people look at this saying, hey, privacy is magic, or it's impossible, or it's some enormous feat. We took the different approach. We publicize every single thing we do. We wrote step-by-step guides on how a person or an individual or an employer or an employee can do the scrubbing by themselves. We scan a person for free. We point out all the exposures at every, everywhere we found them. And then we say, hey, here's what to do. Step one, click this link. Step two, send this email. Step three, click that form, whatever. The thing is with our company, Privacy B is focused for economies of scale. So we take this very tedious and arduous process and we can scale it out, out to resolve hundreds of exposures, whereas most people don't have the time to sit down for 20 or 30 hours and do it manually. But nothing here is magic. And as far as expectations, I mean, everything that we do, the end user can do, we're just, you know, you know we're a, um, a commodity for those who don't have the hours to invest. Right. It's good like uh, hiring an accountant if you don't want to do your own taxes, right? Most people don't have the expertise to do their own taxes. <laughs> You're hitting a sore spot. I don't like talking about taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> How do the data brokers respond to these sorts of requests? Or, you know, to what degree are they above board and, and want to do the right thing? And how many of them uh, are more difficult to work with? <laughs> so they're, um, data brokers are, are pretty good. Some people search sites are a little more slippery. Um, there's a couple different answers to that. So if a state or a country has some kind of privacy legislation that allows us to legally compel a removal, we will actually capture a limited power of attorney. We will go through the steps and, and leverage the law to force the data broker to comply and then rescan to hold them accountable. Some areas, certain states, certain territories don't have a law today that's protecting them legally, which is unfortunate. And you know, we actually have three lobbyists on retainer trying to fix that. We really believe in solving this, this problem. However, until then, um, we send in a request to a data broker that may not have you know, legal legislative requirements to delete it. And we, we phrase it very formally. We try to uh, encourage action and follow up aggressively. However, they could choose to say no. 
in however they usually don't because when you're looking at a data broker they might have you know 300 million 500 million a few billion if they're global profiles of individuals massive amounts of data they're trying to stay in the shadows you are these companies the epsilons and axioms and these companies that are not household names that make millions of dollars buying and selling data if somebody comes along like a privacy bee with a deletion request saying hey please delete this john doe from the database it's easier for them to say, sure, we'll remove them in good faith, then try to push back, create animosity, a potential legal issue for them if they did something wrong, and a, a blow up that causes them, that forces them out of the shadows. So the easiest path for them is compliance. So while we do have some fights here and there, the vast majority of companies that are monetizing people's information, immorally in my opinion, they usually comply when a proper request comes in. How does this work going forward? I mean, is this, I, I suspect it's not a one and done sort of thing. There's a certain amount of ongoing vigilance that people have to have with this. That's a hugely valuable point. Uh, a lot of people think, hey, I deleted, I'm good. The problem is it's a, there's a cycle in the data broker industry. Um, on average, we see about half of our exposures reemerge within the first six months, usually closer to five months. Um, which is a, a, a huge percentage, right? Where we just send a deletion in, they comply, they remove it, but then a few months later, it pops back up again. And the reason for that is data brokers buy data from data originators or data sources. So if you delete your um, grocery shopping profile from you know, some marketing agency, and later they refresh it back with the company that buys from Kroger Plus, eventually it will it'll re it'll re-percolate uh, through the ecosystem and re-emerge again. So just because it's a deletion now doesn't mean it's permanent. So finding a, a way of monitoring it ongoing is, you know, and then whenever it re does re-emerge, resubmitting the deletion request, it's, it's almost like a game of whack-a-mole. It's very frustrating. However, you know, we, we rescan all of our people. It's usually seven days to 30 days, depending on the license type. We're very, very aggressively monitoring what's going on. And then as soon as we see it pop back up again, you know, within 24 hours, we resubmit the deletion and, and start the process all over again. So having a service is really, you're buying privacy as an ongoing investment in yourself, your quality of life, your quality of your business, almost as much as a single transactional, hey, let's get this scrubbed and move on. You know, you, unfortunately, the world is continuously collecting and, and repopulating these databases. Do people notice a difference? I mean, after you and your colleagues have done your work or, or your organizations like yours, is, is there anything in, in my life that I would notice? You know, are there fewer, I don't know, pestering text messages or calls? or you know, just, Would I notice a change? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's why we do it, right? Um, and at the end of the day, a telemarketer who's calling you every hour, driving you insane, making you want to throw your phone out the window they're not just picking up their end and dialing random numbers. They buy a list of people to target, and they take that list, they load it into some auto-dialing system, and they hit go. If you remove yourself from the data brokers that sell to these telemarketers, telemarketers know the numbers are going stale. So every day that goes by, less numbers they can connect with. So every month, every three months, they have to buy a new data set. So even if the telemarketer themselves doesn't remove you, if you're subscribed to an ongoing data removal service like PrivacyBee, we remove from the data brokers where whenever the telemarketer does refresh the database, maybe next month, your name is no longer in that list. They're not selling your information anymore, which means when they load that giant spam list into their, call, their auto dialer and they hit go, it doesn't ring your phone. So yes, the tangible result is you get less telemarketing, you get less spam text messages, you get less, hey, sell your house or buy this car extended warranty. And then for businesses, they get less spear phishing, which and it's less social engineering, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge point in the B2B world. You know, you talk about data breaches, you know, and, you know, they invest in top of the line cybersecurity, but we like to say cybersecurity is no longer enough in 2023. I mean, 100% of the companies that got breached last year had cybersecurity and they still got breached. So removing you know, the ability for hackers to see the employees like a juicy steak, that's really what's um, hardening the, you know, the company's infosec where there's less spear phishing, less social engineering, and ultimately less data breaches. So a lot of tangible results. 
Joe, what do you think? Dave, I like your analogy that you've said many times in this show about your personal data being like fissile material. <laughs> right. Radioactive stuff. Yeah. It's fine as long as it's spread out and not really concentrated in any one area. But once it starts getting concentrated, uh, it becomes dangerous. Right. Right. Uh, so one of the things that Harry talks about are affinity cards. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you go to any of the stores around here, they all have their affinity card, and you can't get the special low price deals unless you have an affinity card. That's right. Um, there are a couple tricks. Some of these places will have their own card that they can scan. Yes. Uh, and you get, the, you get the deals. Other places will say, I forgot my card, and they'll just give you the deal. Right. Uh, and then... There's the 8675309 trick. Yes. Are you familiar with this trick? I use it every day. Okay. So you... <laughs> I do. At my local grocery store, I use it every day. Some people may not be familiar <laughs> with the song. I don't know. I think everybody our yeah. age, once I said that phone number, they had that song in their yeah, head. Yeah, it's Jenny's phone number. Right, We Jenny. all know Jenny. 8675309. If you sure. take your area code, your local area code, and put that in, and then enter 8675309, somebody has set up... A, an affinity account under that number. Guarantee it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so you can use that one. Now, I found some places where it doesn't work as well. Like I've recently had some difficulty collecting the fuel points. For oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I used to be able to get fuel points using yeah. that number. Um, but it still does work at the store for, by, as you say, it works. And, and, and all it does is it keeps your information out of the grocery store's hands with your your buying power. Right. Right, what you're right. buying. They don't know that that Dave Bittner's buying this. No. They think that Jenny's buying this Right, stuff. and boy, Jenny does a lot of shopping. Yeah, she does. <laughs> <laughs> there are a ton of people using this. <laughs> yeah. I think the horse is already out of the barn on a lot of this mm -hmm. uh, for most of us, which is, uh, which is why Harry and his company have a business model. Yeah. Because <laughs> they go out and they try to remedy it. I try to use pseudonyms wherever I can, mm -hmm. but I think it's pretty easy for companies to just make the association, oh, this is Joe Kerrigan. I know who this is. Right. Um, you know, we need to get back to an opt-in society instead mm. of being opt-out. Yeah. I would, I would like to, to see something happen where it's opt-in. Um, and Harry talks briefly about OSINT, or Open Source Intelligence Gathering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're talking about the attack chain, this is part of the attack chain, particularly in an organization that you really don't have any control over. It's something that an attacker can go out and do because you kind of have to have this information out there and your employees are going to have that information out there anyway. Mm. You as an individual might have some, some control over that. Like, I don't think I even show up in the Facebook uh, member searches. Mm. Um, like, if you search my name and you, and you and I aren't connected, I don't show up. Okay. Uh, at least I... I think that. I don't haven't verified that because I don't have a second Facebook account. Right. At least not yet. <laughs> um, but these company, a company doesn't have that. So that information is out there and these gathering, these people gathering the information, they're going to do it. So I, my recommendation is just think that somebody already knows all the open source information that's out there about your company mm -hmm. because they probably do. If they're good attackers, they're going to know that before they take their first action. Yeah. Harry talks about websites requiring a photo ID. Uh, this is a non-starter for me out of the gate by default. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there might be a couple of exceptions to this. Like if there's a, an online bank that requires me to do this for opening an account, I, I might do that. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm not going to do that with an online bank. I'm going to go to a branch and open an account there. Right. Um, I, but there are a lot of banks that are just online now. Yeah. Uh, there, we had a, um, a guest on a couple, maybe a month or two ago that was on a dating app. Uh, I'm not single, so I don't need to use a dating app. Mm -hmm. uh, if, <laughs> a married man should never be on a dating app. <laughs> um, uh, but were I single, I, I might consider using some kind of data verification service or something like that for a dating app. I okay. think that's probably a good personal security measure to make sure that people you're talking to are vetted. Mm. But outside of those two situations, I can't think of a, uh, of a situation where I would be using uh, an ID. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, like if Facebook said, hey, Joe, we need to see your driver's license. I'm going to say, nope, close my account and delete all my data. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd say that to them the moment they said that. That would be the end of the line for me and Facebook. Right. Same with any social media platform. If LinkedIn said that to me tomorrow, I'm gone. Yeah. Uh, uh, th that, is, that is a line in the sand for me. 
I recently uh, logged into Facebook again after a four-year break. I know. I saw you. Yeah. And, We're uh, still friends on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and it, so now Facebook is nagging me to, uh, hey, upload your contact list. I'm like, I'm not falling for that again. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't you say stop asking? I thought I, it, it nagged me maybe. for that for years, and I, I it doesn't nag me anymore. Yeah, maybe. I never gave it to him. I don't know. It, yeah, it, it, it's annoying. It, it, me, I, I joined Facebook, and I immediately realized why I had left. <laughs> <laughs> Just, so, are you are you are you enjoying it? So you're not enjoying it all. Um, I mean, the reasons that I reconnected, which were that I felt like there were some, you know, life events from friends that I was missing out on. So I'm, that's the reason I'm there. Right. But it is so noisy. Like, it's just, the, the content is so diffuse. Like, it's just, there's just so much crap on there, that the ads and the... Oh, yeah. It, the just, yeah. I, I, it, and the, let me tell um, you, Mastodon is so much better. Right. So much better. To have the, a, a non-algorithmic uh, feed is so much nicer. Yeah. Well... Try to convince everybody on Facebook to go to Mastodon. Well, that's the, yeah, that, there you go. That's the problem. They won't, they won't do it. They will not. No. Yep. Amplifiers. Do you remember when we went to the No Before conference? Yep. And uh, the late Kevin Mitnick was on stage. Right. That was after we had interviewed him. Yeah. Uh, highlight of my career, by the way. <laughs> Very nice. So thank you for that opportunity, Dave. Yeah, sure. Um, during that presentation, he gave a, uh, he showed us a tool that, had all kinds of information about somebody. Yeah. And had a volunteer from the audience come up and the guy just got this horrified, shocked look on his face as he saw this information that was about him in this tool. Mm. And Kevin wouldn't share the information about what the tool was. He wouldn't tell us what it was. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't tell anybody. I asked him, he said, I, I don't, I'm, can't tell anybody about what that is. Mm. I, I don't know what it is. Somebody at the conference suggested it might be a private investigation tool, mm. um, like for PIs, yeah, private investigators. Uh, but this data about you is out there. It exists. Yeah. And en masse. And it's, I think it's funny when Harry talks about how these data brokers comply with, uh, with his request to remove data from people mm-hmm. or uh, on people from their systems. They just, want it, they just want it to go away real quiet, which mm. I think is really kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentions two of these uh, data brokers in particular. One is Epsilon and the other one is Axiom. And uh, I looked those companies up to see, are these companies, how, what are they? They're both divisions of other companies. Hmm. Uh, one of them came from a merger between JCPenney Credit Corporation and the Limited Credit Corporation. Hmm. And uh, they had all this customer data, and that's how they started getting, getting big. It's really interesting. To, you can read their Wikipedia article on these corporations, on their parent corporations. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, the, the information is out there. They don't say a lot. There's not a lot known about these two companies. Right. Or these two organizations. They're actually divisions. Hmm. Um, Interesting that once again, uh, or once after you delete the information, it starts showing up again. It's because you continue using the internet. Right. Right? And it's just out there. Uh, The key point is that security and privacy are two different things. We talked earlier in this show about Google and their full stack of of privacy intrusion. Uh, Google does security... Very, very well. You are probably at very minimal risk using Google services for a security breach. Mm -hmm. But you have to understand that your privacy does not exist as far as Google's concerned. They know a lot about you. Yeah. Uh, Same with Facebook. Same with uh, Meta and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. All of these companies, which is owned by Microsoft now, all these companies are just amassing huge troves of data about you. Right. And there's little you can do to, to... keep them from doing it, except, uh, well, they're, they're, I mean, you can take extreme measures and that is... <laughs> you could move to the EU. Right? <laughs> that would be good if we had something like that. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's my, my big point for the end of the show is that uh, privacy and security are two different things. Keep yeah. that in mind. All right. Well, our thanks to Harry Moggins from Privacy B for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time.
That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.